An Undeceptions podcast. Hi, John Dixon here. You're about to hear our first ever live Undeceptions podcast episode. We recorded it at the recent Undeceptions conference in Sydney. The conference was a blast. Our theme song was played by the fabulous live Undeceptions band, and the readings and other music were all mixed in live in front of an audience of nearly 600 people. It was great to meet listeners in person, and we're going to be doing it again soon. Our conference was sponsored by Silar Travel and Mauling College, who you'll hear more about in this episode. But I also have to acknowledge our wonderful season sponsors, Zondervan Academic and Anglican Aid. Without them, our podcast just wouldn't be happening. Okay, on with the show. You were with him. To the end. Peter, as the sun rose, I saw him. He was there and he was... All his pain was gone from him. A dream. It wasn't a dream, he was there. Mary, he has gone from us. He is dead. He's not gone. Even death cannot hold him. Mary, why would he come to you alone? Why does that matter? It's not right that you come here now to tell us he has chosen you before us, that he has brought you some special message. That's a clip from the 2018 film, Mary Magdalene, starring uh, Rooney Mara as Mary and Chiwetel Ejiofor as Peter. And although we didn't uh, see him in that clip, uh, Joaquin Phoenix uh, plays Jesus. And some of you who have listened to uh, episodes know that I have regularly called him Joaquin uh, Phoenix. And I think producer Kaylee loves to keep bringing that up. So even sometimes when I've said it correctly, she inserts the false. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you may have picked up, I haven't seen every film that uh, I find myself talking about in the show. Uh, but this film uh, draws from the so-called Gospel of Mary. Uh, this is a text uncovered in the 19th century, but most scholars think it was written in the mid to late second century. Uh, though I haven't seen the film, I have read the Gospel of Mary. And in it, Mary Magdalene is the only one who has received the special secret true message from Jesus. Uh, the apostles, the male apostles, didn't get that message, and those boys aren't happy. When Mary had said this, she fell silent, since it was to this point that the Saviour had spoken with her. But Andrew answered and said to the brethren, say what you wish to say about what she has said. I at least do not believe that the Saviour said this, for certainly these teachings are strange ideas. Peter answered and spoke concerning the same things, 
He questioned them about the Saviour. Did he really speak privately with a woman and not openly to us? Are we to turn about and all listen to her? Did he prefer her to us? The Gospel of Mary, chapter 9. That's our voice actor and, as you've seen, cellist Dakota Love. Thank you, Dakota. Um, in this text, uh, Mary tries to pass on to the blokes the secret message Jesus uh, told her. Uh, they don't believe because she is a woman. And why would Jesus prefer a woman to the men? Now, the truth is, historically speaking, uh, this Gospel of Mary has no claim to history. It comes from 130 years after Jesus, but it does capture in some ways uh, one of the key complaints about the Orthodox Church, that the church is misogynistic, that the church isn't interested in listening to the female voice. This ancient text somehow captures that sentiment and that resentment. But our guest today reckons not so much. She reckons uh, far from suppressing the voice of women and sidelining uh, their contribution, the original gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, actually bring to the fore the testimony of women. In fact, she goes as far as suggesting, quote, that in these earlier gospels, the portrait of Jesus is more beautiful, more historically accurate, and more valuing of women than anything the Gospel of Mary can offer. I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. This special episode of Undeceptions is brought to you by our Undeceptions Conference sponsors, Scylla Travel and Morling College, and boy, are we thankful for their support. Each episode of Undeceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, philosophy, science, or culture that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. And with the help of people who know what they're talking about, we are trying 
to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. And our guest today does just that for a living. To our Undeceptions audience, uh, she is already well known, but far more people will hear this uh, in their podcast feeds than are here in the building today. For those listening to the pod, Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin is the author of the award-winning 2019 book, Confronting Christianity, which I have said on the pod uh, many times is arguably the best all-round defense of the Christian faith for a decade. It was also the topic of the episode we did with Rebecca, episode 18. Rebecca holds a doctorate in English literature from Cambridge University, where she specialized in prisons in Shakespeare. And I am gonna extract the truth about that today. Few people today, I think, match the beauty and clarity of Rebecca's thoughts on diverse topics like science and sexuality, heaven and hell. She's written uh, quite a few books and it seems she's just uh, pumping them out more and more. Uh, after the Confronting Christianity book, she's written Secular Creed and uh, the newest one, the one we want to reflect on tonight, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. Will you please welcome to the stage, Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, this makes great audio. Uh, Rebecca's got the whole couch to herself. I'm just going to take a little nap here. I'm pretty tired as <laughs> well. Hopefully, I can keep you awake. Including, can you, can you, uh, prisons in Shakespeare? Um, can you, in 30 seconds, tell us what you discovered? I was looking at the history of prisons in Shakespeare's London and how they relate to the stagings and metaphors of imprisonment in Shakespeare's plays. Mm -hmm. Can I tell you my favourite yeah. prison metaphor in Shakespeare? It's when Juliet says to Romeo, "'Tis almost morning I would have thee gone, and yet no farther than a wanton's bird that lets it hop a little from his hand, like a poor prisoner in his twisted jives, and with a silk thread plucks it back again, so loving jealous of his liberty. And Romeo says, I would I were thy bird. Rebecca McLaughlin. <laughs> um, you open your book with uh, citations from the Gospel of Mary, just as we did. Uh, why did you do that? And what do, you, um, what do you think that Gospel was trying to get at in those scenes? I mean, I, honestly, I would call it the so-called Gospel of Mary, partly because the document itself doesn't call itself the Gospel of Mary. It's what people have, have put onto it subsequently. And there's been a, a narrative that's been uh, popularized in the last uh, couple of decades, suggesting that the four biblical gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are giving us one perspective on Jesus, but that there are these other, perhaps more authentic gospels that might give us a, a more real view of who Jesus is, and in particular, a more sort of feminist view of who Jesus is. And I began the book by looking at this so-called Gospel of Mary, which, again, from, from a distance, could look to us like, oh, well, this is privileging Mary's voice, where you know, the gospel names that we have in, in our Bibles are, are all named after men to us today. So, so perhaps there's been this sort of switching around that's happened. But actually, as, as you look carefully at each of the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
you could actually call them the Gospels of the Marys. Mary was the, the most common name among Jewish women of Jesus' time and place, which is why there are so many Marys in the Gospels, just as actually Simon is the most common man's name, which is why you have so many, so many Simons going around. And at, at multiple points in the Gospels in our Bibles, the Gospel authors are depending on the testimony of these Marys. I want to get to that in a moment. How would you sum up then the place of women in ancient society, in the time in which these gospels were written, outside of their gospel narratives? What is the place of women? I think it's always hard to make sort of sweeping generalizations about any culture, and it's always going to be a little um, intellectually lazy when we overgeneralize. But many of our modern assumptions about equality between men and women were not assumptions that were being made in the ancient world into which Christianity was born. In fact, women were often seen as, as inferior to men in various ways. And particularly when it came to sort of religious matters, women were seen as, as gullible and over-emotional and prone to, to believing things, which is an interesting context to have as, as we look at, at what the Gospels say. And women weren't seen as um, you know, equal to men in a whole range of ways. Many, many of our understandings of women's um, rights and, and women's um, place in, in society um, the, the right of women, for instance, to um, have an equivalent education to men, um, the idea of, of consent when it comes to sexual relationships. Many of these things were, were not seen as norms in, in the ancient world. And one of the ways in which this comes through sort of strikingly is in the fact that it was considered morally not problematic to abandon infants. If you didn't want the baby who had been born, you could abandon them. Um, and there's a fascinating letter from a, a Roman soldier in the first century writing to his wife who's pregnant and he casually makes the remark, you know, if the baby's born, it's a boy, then keep the baby. If it's a girl, then get rid of her. Yeah. It sort of says something We have about some uh, additional ancient texts and uh, we're going to hear from them right now. Woman is more compassionate than men, more easily moved to tears, at the same time, is more jealous, more querulous, more apt to scold and to strike. She is furthermore, more prone to despondency and less hopeful than the man, more void of shame or self-respect, more false of speech, more deceptive and of more retentive memory. Aristotle, History of Animals, 4th century BC. But let not a single witness be credited, but three or two at least. And those such whose testimony is confirmed by their good lives. But let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. Flavius, Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews, Book 4, First Century. Rebecca, are women uh, there right at the beginning of the Jesus narrative? So let's turn to the most obvious woman who's right there at the beginning, uh, Mary. Um, can you paint a picture of Mary for us, especially those who maybe, you know, haven't grown up with any religious tuition? What can we say about Mary, the mother of Jesus? Yeah, Mary, the mother of Jesus, not to be confused with all the other Marys yeah, we're yeah, going to yeah. have to talk about. Uh, I 
call my son Luke because Luke's gospel is one of my favorite gospels. And uh, and (laughs) John is kind of the other, but Luke's a better name than John. No offense to all the Johns out there. (laughs) Uh, And if you read through Luke's gospel, you'll find interestingly, men and women are often kind of paralleled and sometimes contrasted. And when they are, the woman always comes out looking better. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, we we meet a, a man, a priest, Jewish priest, Zechariah. And he has an amazing encounter with an angel sent by God. And he encounters this angel in exactly what you would expect to encounter an angel, which is in the temple. He's a priest and sort of guy you would expect to be encountering an angel. And the angel is is telling Zechariah that he's going to, he and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a son who's going to go on to um, John the Baptist, a sort of great prophet sent to pave the way for, for Jesus. Uh, and Zechariah sort of questions the angel, and, and Gabriel says, listen, buddy, not quite buddy, but essentially, um, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent with this message for you. You're not going to be able to speak until this happens. <laughs> it's kind of a little bit of a, a wrist slap to our friend Zechariah. But then we see the same angel appearing to this most likely teenage girl, um, Mary, in a, comes from a little town of Nazareth. Um, and he speaks to her of, of God's favor towards her and how she is going to be, become the mother of God's only son. And she has a question for Gabriel as well. You know, how, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And he explains to her that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her and the power of the Most High is going to overshadow her. And so the child who she's going to bear is going to be holy, be called the Son of God. Now, most likely, whether or not we are followers of Jesus today, we're all kind of familiar with the idea that Christians believe that the creator God of all the universe became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ, whether or not we think that's a credible claim or not. We're sort of familiar with that idea. But for, for a Jewish person of, of Jesus's day, it would have been utterly bizarre and frankly blasphemous. You know, stories were told of the Greek and Roman gods um, spawning offspring with, with humans. And so there was a sort of idea in, in the broader pagan culture that somebody could be a, a son of God. And in fact, that was a title that kind of could be given to an, an emperor even. But the Jews were fiercely monotheistic and they believed in a God who was so utterly transcendent that humans couldn't look on God and live. And yet Mary is being told that she is going to give birth to God's son. It puts her in a very difficult position, actually, because she's, she's not yet married. We're told that she's betrothed, a sort of form of engaged um, to this man named Joseph. They're not yet married. So she has the, the problem that she's going to be pregnant and unmarried. But if she says, oh, don't worry, this is the, the child of God himself, that's only going to make things worse. You know, she's only kind of adding blasphemy charges then to her apparent sexual immorality. But Mary says famously, behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be to me as you have said. And the angel left her. We see this extraordinary faith in this woman who was a yeah, complete nobody up until that point. She lived in a, a backwater of a backwater of the Roman Empire. Uh, it seems like she was sort of from a low, lower income family when she and Joseph go to dedicate their baby, they kind of uh, do the sacrifice that's for, typically for, for poorer people. 
And yet she is the person who God chooses to become the mother of his only son. I want us to hear the famous Mary's song, uh, which is her response to these amazing events. And then I'd love you to unpack what you think we learn about Jesus from Mary's own lips. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary's song from the Gospel of Luke, chapter one. It almost sounds revolutionary, her statements. The mighty brought down, the humble lifted up. What do you think we're learning from Mary? It absolutely is revolutionary. And, and I love actually the the way that Luke in his gospel makes time to tell us about this scene, which, which happens between Mary and, and Elizabeth, the, the wife of Zechariah, who we heard about earlier, because Mary, after hearing from the angel Gabriel, goes to visit Elizabeth, her older relative. And when Elizabeth, who's pregnant with the infant John the Baptist, hears Mary's greeting, Luke tells us that she, Elizabeth, is filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, People are sometimes filled with the Holy Spirit, but it's typically if they are sort of prophets or great kings. Here's this woman, Elizabeth, being filled with the Holy Spirit and recognizing who Jesus is even in utero. And she says, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to visit me? And it's at that point then that Mary, who we've only heard a little bit from up to this point in the narrative, unleashes this extraordinary hymn of praise and talks about the, the massive kind of moral revolution that Jesus is going to bring about in the world as, as all our understandings of, of power and privilege get turned upside down around this, this son of God who is coming into the world. And again, we, we might expect that the son of God would have come into the world to lord it over everybody here. And Jesus later goes on to explain that even he, the son of man, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we see the, the seeds of that beautiful reversal, that, that topsy-turvying of everything that might have been assumed about status and power and privilege. We see that in Mary's extraordinary prophecy about who Jesus is. When I was first writing this book and, and looking at um, Elizabeth and Mary and then 
Um, Anna from the tribe of Asher, who's described by Luke as a prophetess, who they, uh, Mary and Joseph meet when they go to present Jesus in the temple. Um, and, and recognizing, oh, these three women are actually being presented to us specifically by Luke as, as prophets, people who are speaking the truth from God to his people, speaking to us about Jesus with, with direct revelation from the Lord. And yet, when Jesus grows up and starts his ministry, he chooses 12 blokes to be the 12 apostles. So if he likes women so much, why, why not at least two women <laughs> apostles? Yeah, so famously, Jesus chooses 12 apostles who are sometimes in the Gospels called the 12 disciples. But we need to also recognize that there was a, a larger group of disciples who, who traveled around with Jesus. Now, a disciple's job was to uh, learn from their, their rabbi, to memorize his, his teachings, to see everything that he did. There's actually a, a larger group of disciples who travel around with Jesus. But these 12 apostles are chosen, and, and they, they quite clearly, if, you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, there were the 12 tribes of Israel, and God's people sort of being built by these 12 tribes. When Jesus chooses these 12 Jewish men, it's like he's, he's signaling the restart of, of God's people. This is the sort of new kind of 12 tribes. Um, but their, their job is not going to be to procreate and to sort of fill, fill the, the earth that way, but it's actually going to be having a specific message to be taking out into the world. Right, so the, um, for the metaphor of 12 new patriarchs for a new Israel to work, it, it has kind of had to be men. So yeah, but, but Luke is, is very clear with us, especially that there were multiple women who were also disciples of Jesus. Yes, you, you make a brilliant case in, in your book for this. And so I do want to talk about this. Can we do a kind of rapid fire round uh, around some of the, some of right. the women? Just your, your brief, you know, introduce us to, ready, Mary Magdalene. Luke tells us in, in Luke chapter eight, that Mary Magdalene had had seven demons cast out from her. Oh, geez, that's, a, that's a rough life right there, yeah? And she'd been a, we actually know very little about her, aside from where she comes from, Mary from Magdala, that she's had seven demons cast out from her, and she goes on to become the most famous among Jesus' female disciples because of the pivotal role she plays in witnessing the resurrection. Great rapid fire round. Um, Joanna. So Joanna, um, when Luke introduces us to this, this group of women who travel around with Jesus in Luke 8, there's Mary Magdalene. Um, then there's Joanna, who's described as the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. Now, honestly, for years, as I'd read through Luke's gospel, I just sort of, you know, that washed over me. I don't know Joanna, the wife, I don't know Chusa, <laughs> right? And then I, I did what I would commend everybody to do, which is read more Richard Borkham. Richard Borkham is this brilliant British scholar who does an awful lot of interesting sort of historical work to help us understand more about the Gospels. And he wrote a book called Gospel Women, where he's looking at the named women in the Gospels and what we can understand about them from the information that the Gospel authors give us. And one of the cases that Richard Borkham makes in his more famous book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, is that when the Gospel authors tell us somebody's name, they're pointing us to them as potentially as an eyewitness of what happened. And so, so Luke gives us these, these three, the first two are Mary Magdalene, and second, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Richard Borkham explains that 
we don't know whether Chusa, her husband, was alive or not, but she would have been part of, of Herod's court, uh, quite a, a high-status, rich, wealthy woman who was traipsing around the countryside with Jesus and this sort of seeming rabble of Because Luke explicitly says these women travelled with Jesus. Yes. Yeah. So, so we see this woman who, who again, we often have stories in the Gospels of Jesus um, connecting with the, the poor and the marginalised and, and, and the sick. And, and here we have this woman who may well have been healed by Jesus, it seems like a lot of the women had, but that she actually probably causes something of a stir when she left the court in order to follow Jesus around, to become one of his itinerant disciples. Can we do a double barrel, Mary and Martha of Bethany? Oh, I love Mary and Martha. Yeah, oh my I know goodness. You do. <laughs> so this is another Mary. And if yeah. your name's Mary, then you'd fit right in with the Gospels. Um, Mary and Martha of Bethany, we hear about them both from Luke's Gospel and from John's Gospel, but I'll start with Luke's Gospel. And there's a story told of Jesus going to visit their house. And Martha is, is busy serving, and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. Now that's actually kind of a technical way of positioning yourself as a, as a disciple. To sit at somebody's feet was kind of like to say that you were being their disciple. So Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, presumably along with all the other disciples. Martha's serving, and Martha comes to Jesus and she says, Lord, can you get my sister to pull her weight here? Like, who does, she, who does she think she is sitting at your feet? She can come and help. And Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, you are troubled about many things, but Mary has chosen the better portion and it will not be taken away from her. You know, Martha's concerned about the food that's being served. Mary is concerned to, to take the, the portion, the sort of going with the, the food metaphor of Jesus's teaching as, as the thing that's actually most important. And whereas in that culture, you know, women would have been expected to do the work that Martha was doing of serving, Mary is, is absolutely validated in her choice to actually prioritize listening to Jesus while he's there. And I love how then John tells us another story about these two sisters to just tell very briefly of when their brother Lazarus is, is, is very sick and they call for him and Jesus deliberately waits until Lazarus is dead before he comes. And then he has one of the most powerful, memorable, and extraordinary theological conversations we see recorded in the Gospels with Martha. When he says to her those famous words, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? In John's Gospel, there are famously a number of times when Jesus makes um, I am statements. He's sort of channeling the covenant name of God from the Old Testament scriptures and applying it to himself. So he'll say things like, I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And here, whereas in, in most other instances, he's talking to a whole group of people when he makes these declarations. There, he's talking to one grieving woman. And he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he asks her, do you believe this? So rather than, Martha doesn't come off as well in Luke's account when she's sort of chiding her sister for not helping out, but she gets a, she gets a second go with Jesus. She does, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, we're going to uh, pause here, not for a five minute Jesus, um, but uh, to give Rebecca a chance to catch her breath and have a drink. 
uh, because this is where in the published show, we're gonna go to our sponsors. We're gonna have a little sponsors ad, Sila, Morling. And uh, after the break, uh, we're gonna look at some of Jesus' personal interactions with specific women. And I wanna ask Rebecca a question that's in the back of my mind and I think uh, back of other people's minds. Is all this stuff about trying to view Jesus through the lens of women just a modern feminist conceit? That's after the break. Sila offers experiences for believers and doubters alike, either to deepen their faith or just to learn the facts about ancient times and places. Traveling with Sila to biblical lands is more than just a holiday, and it's more than a pilgrimage. It's an investment in body, mind, and soul that will last a lifetime. Sila offers tours to places like Israel, Jordan, Egypt, Greece, Turkey, and even to Reformation Europe. You can say hi to Alcuin, Aquinas and Calvin. But Silla also offers fab travel opportunities to other amazing parts of the world, allowing you to travel with like-minded people, body, mind and soul people. I'm hosting another tour myself in Israel next year. The first one is sold out, sorry, but Sila has just released a second trip in September 2024. Just search for Origins of Christianity Tour with John Dixon or something like that, and I'd love to see you. Sila is a Hebrew word that we think means an intentional pause. My friends at Sila want you to experience Sila moments, whether on the Sea of Galilee or the Greek island of Patmos. Head to mysilar.com.au to find out more. mysilar.com.au for more. This episode of Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, The Truth in True Crime. What investigating death teaches us about the meaning of life by acclaimed cold case homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace. After years of investigating the causes behind deaths and murders, chasing leads and solving crime, Wallace decided to focus some of those same instincts on the most notable death in human history, the death of Jesus. And while a few of Wallace's cases remain open, unsolved mysteries, the death of Jesus obviously wasn't one of them. His investigation transformed him from atheist to believer. Many of us are hooked on the latest true crime podcast. I'm looking at you, my darling buff. But Wallace reckons there's more than mere entertainment to be found in some of the big murder mysteries of his career. The Truth in True Crime offers some of the lessons Wallace has learned about human nature from both his murder investigations and ancient biblical wisdom. It's a cool idea for a book. You can pre-order your copy of The Truth in True Crime by J. Warner Wallace now on Amazon, of course, or even better, head to zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Don't forget to write forward slash undeceptions. zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions.
In the Democratic Republic of Congo, corruption and conflict have plagued communities like Kindu for decades, and access to quality education as a result is scarce. Schools around Kindu, one of the poorest parts of the DRC, are often dilapidated. They lack basic essentials like books or even teachers. Anglican Aid is looking to change that. By making a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid, you can play a crucial role in providing the tools and resources necessary to transform children's lives. Your donation will help workers on the ground in the DRC to rebuild classrooms, supply materials for students, and offer comprehensive training for educators. Already, there's been incredible progress. Five schools have been renovated, with over 600 students enrolled and thriving. But there's still plenty to do. Please visit anglicanaid.org.au forward slash Undeceptions to lend your support to an organisation Buff and I have long trusted. Help empower children to do what we frankly take for granted, chase their dreams and build a brighter future for themselves and their communities. Go to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash Undeceptions. Thank you. We are so grateful to our friends at Morling College for their support of the Undeceptions podcast. And they've just launched Morling To Go, a free series of short courses for you to explore key questions about the Christian faith, like why believe in God? That's a good one. How can a good God let bad things happen? Or simply, why Jesus? You can check out the free Morling to Go series and other study options hand-picked specifically for Undeceptions listeners. Just go to morling.edu.au forward slash Undeceptions. Morling, by the way, is spelt M-O-R-L-I-N-G dot E-D-U dot A-U forward slash Undeceptions. Are we going to get small like doll size or are Barbies our size? Yes. Basically everything that men do in your world, women do in ours. The president's here. I am, you're welcome. Barbie is a doctor and a lawyer and so much more than that. Ah! I thought we discontinued her. Hi, Barbie. There are Kens too. There are many Kens. Where do the Kens stay? I love you too. I don't know. Barbie, July 21st. <laughs> That's uh, just a little snippet um, of uh, director Mark's new favorite film. <laughs> uh, number two is now Lord of the Rings. Um, and uh, producer Kaylee uh, wrote a little note that I was to thank you all for coming out here instead of going to the Barbenheimer, whatever, whatever that means. Um, but in, in the movie, Barbie land is this uh, kind of utopia where uh, the, the Barbies can be and do anything. They are doctors, they are physicists, they are the president, and the dolls believe that they are projecting this onto the girls in the real world and helping them to believe that they 
can be president and so on. And the film's uh, director, Greta Gerwig, um, has you know, made clear that what she's doing is she's subverting a very popular uh, icon to, um, uh, to take something that has been seen as perpetuating um, the kind of female stereotype and cliche, but then recasting it as a great feminist narrative. And I say that because I want to ask you if that's all you're really doing in uh, your new book of seeing Jesus through women's eyes. Is, is it just a, a modern attempt to subvert, contradict what's actually there in Scripture, the kind of Ken doll patriot, patriarchy of the Bible? No. <laughs> okay, my next question is... I'll say a little more. But you, you see where I'm coming from. I, there will I do. Be I'm going to answer if you give me totally a second. If you just will think that. Let me I'll speak a minute. Thank you. Gentlemen. <laughs> As I mentioned, Richard Borkham is, I'm sort of like a prophet of Richard Borkham. If you guys would just read him and, instead of me, that would be fantastic. Um, he's made a very compelling case that the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are giving us authentic access to eyewitness testimony. Now, people often think about the Gospels as um, the products of oral tradition with the idea that, you know, maybe um, somebody saw something or heard something and then they, they pass it on to somebody else, you pass it on to somebody else, you pass it on to somebody else. And what we are getting written down in the Gospels is like the sort of, um, bit like what they call the telephone game in, in America, where you sort of whisper, one kid whispers to the next kid and then the message gets whispered around and around and around. And then you laugh at how different the original was. From, from what was said at the end. People often have this idea that that's what the Gospels are like. In actual fact, the Gospels give us the, the testimony of people who actually saw what Jesus did and who actually heard what Jesus said. And in many instances, they're giving us the testimony of women. So what I was doing in the book of looking at Jesus through the eyes of women was looking at all the named and unnamed women in the Gospels that we, we hear about and thinking, what does Jesus look like through their eyes? But it's actually not a modern project, it's an ancient project because that is precisely what the Gospel authors are inviting us to do. They are very specifically asking us to listen to the eyewitness testimony of women and of men. Uh, so let's drill down on one particular scene that you write beautifully about in the book. The, the longest recorded conversation in all of the Gospels is between Jesus, unsurprisingly, and a woman from Samaria. What's going on there? So when, when we hear the, the word Samaritan, um, if we know anything about the Samaritans, we know that they're good, right? Because it's a very famous story Jesus told about a good Samaritan. So that's our like trigger word is like Samaritan good. For Jews of Jesus' time and place, they would have had precisely the opposite association. Samaritan, bad. The Samaritans were the people who the Jews were raised to hate. And in, in John chapter four, Jesus leads his disciples through Samaritan territory, which often Jews would actually go a long way around to try and avoid Samaritan territory. Jesus leads them right in there. And then he sits down by a well in the middle of the day while his disciples go off and get some food. And he initiates a conversation with a Samaritan woman who's come to draw water. 
he says, you know, can you, can you give me something to drink? And she says, wait a minute, why are you, a Jewish man, asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Like Jesus is breaking so many barriers here because not only is he initiating this conversation with a woman, um, but Jesus shouldn't have been like sharing utensils and things with, with Gentiles. Um, and as this, the conversation progresses, we find more and more that this woman is the last person a respectable Jewish rabbi should have been having a chit-chat with. Now, Jesus shouldn't have been seen dead with this woman. And yet, in the course of their conversation, he offers her living water. And she, it turns out, you know, she was surprised to meet Jesus, but he evidently wasn't surprised to meet her. Because at one point in the conversation, he says to her, um, go and call your husband. And as a modern reader, you know, I think, oh, of course, this, you know, ancient guy uh, doesn't really want to talk to this woman. He, he just wants to talk to her husband. Um, and then Jesus explains that he knows that this woman has had five husbands and the man that she is now living with is not her husband. There's various sort of explanations as to why this might have been the case. It's not necessarily the case that she has sort of leapt from man to man. Perhaps she'd been widowed multiple times or, or whatever it is. But, but certainly now she's living with a man who's, who's not her husband. She's a Samaritan woman. There are all sorts of sort of um, shame associations for her at this point. And as their conversation progresses, you think, well, gosh, you know, Jesus is, is having this lengthy kind of theological discussion with this woman. And at the end, she says, well, I, I know that when Messiah comes, he who is called the Christ, he will teach us everything. And Jesus says to her, I am the one speaking to you. Now, as I mentioned before, in John's Gospel, there are many um, famous sort of I am statements that Jesus makes, channeling the, the covenant name of God from the Old Testament. I actually think this is one of those as well. Jesus is saying, I am the one speaking to you. Now, now it's not usually included in, in the list of Jesus' I am statements because he, it's not um, making some like massive metaphorical claim, like I am the good shepherd, channeling um, a massive metaphor from the Old Testament scriptures. But if you look at it carefully, when Jesus says, I am the one speaking to you, I think it's reasonable for us to conclude that part of Jesus's identity is that he is God made flesh who bothers to spend his time with a woman that most other people wouldn't wanted anything to do with. It is part of, of his revealed identity that he actually pursued that Samaritan woman then and pursues the, the least validated people today, the most marginalized, the, the least religiously respectable today. He is the one who wants to speak with you. We have another example of uh, a woman that Jesus interacts with. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment for she said if I touch even his garments, 
I will be made well. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. What do you make of that scene? It's a fascinating moment in, in context in the Gospels because Jesus has, has just been asked by a, a guy who is a synagogue ruler to come because his daughter is, is very sick. And Jesus is on, her, on his way to heal this little girl. When this woman sort of sneaks up on him because she thinks, oh, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'd, I'd be healed. Now, it's hard for us sort of culturally to get our minds around her situation because not only had she been sick for 12 years, she'd spent all her money on doctors who hadn't made her better, but she was also in Jewish terms sort of ceremonial unclean. And she could have passed on that uncleanness to Jesus by, by touching him. So it's actually really kind of shady in, in their cultural terms what she did. And Jesus responds immediately. He, he feels the, the power go out from him and he stops and he looks around and he says, uh, who, who touched me? And his disciples say to him, what are you talking about? You're in the middle of a crowd. Everybody's bumbling along next to you. You're getting sort of rubbed shoulders. What do you mean, who touched you? And Jesus says, no, 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 somebody touched me. And he looks around and looks around and then the woman comes and she kneels in front of him and she's trembling with fear. Now, presumably she's, she's expecting Jesus to rebuke her for what she's done. She explains what she's done. And he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. She's the only person in the Gospels Jesus calls daughter. Now, if we think about that, that language, my two daughters are here with me today. And unlike most people in this room, they have the right to come up and touch me anytime they like. Of course she had the right to touch him. She's his, his family. We have this beautiful validation of this woman who, who had given up hope from all, all other sources, coming to Jesus in desperation and being received by him with this familial, loving language. Historian uh, Tom Holland, who's got to mention several times, and friend of the pod, can't remember what episode, but wonderful episode with him, wrote in his book, Dominion, these words, men no more hesitated to use slaves and prostitutes to relieve themselves of their sexual needs than they did to use the side of the road as a toilet. It's confronting. What do you think Jesus might have said to that kind of Roman male? We have this extraordinary, radical ethical teaching from Jesus that, that cuts across so many things in the ancient world and so many things in, in our world today. And one of the things we see in, in Jesus's teaching is, is an absolute call to sexual faithfulness. In a broader culture where men were not expected to be faithful to their wives, totally fine to sleep with, with other women, uh, prostitutes, people they had enslaved, male or female actually. And the New Testament scriptures instead paint a picture where following Jesus as a man means having sex with that most one woman to whom you're married and to whom you are pouring yourself out in sacrificial love, like Jesus, poured himself out in sacrificial love for us. I don't think we recognize quite what a move toward justice 
and equality this was. Because actually the people who suffer in a sort of sexual economy when sex is completely sort of deregulated and and men can do whatever they, they want to do are women and children. And women and children were two categories of people who Jesus' teachings and actions specifically changed and transformed in terms of their value. And we have a quotation from another ancient writing that indicates just how radical the Christian view was and how actually Christians left themselves open to criticism from smart Greeks and Romans. After his death, Jesus rose again and showed the marks of his punishment and how his hands had been pierced. But who saw this? A hysterical female, as you say? And perhaps some other one of those who were deluded by the same sorcery. Origin Against Celsus, Book Two. It's a quote from the first full-scale defense of Christianity that we have from Origen in the early third century. Utterly brilliant uh, intellect uh, who became a Christian and uh, defended the Christian faith. And what he's doing there is he's actually citing one of the great critics of Christianity, a Greek intellectual of the late second century called Celsus. And Celsus's knockdown argument for Christianity is it all started with a hysterical woman who thought she saw Jesus alive from the dead, Rebecca. Christians left themselves open to this criticism, didn't they? Because all the gospels agree that women not only witnessed the crucifixion close up, they were the first to know about the resurrection. What do you make of this uniformity in this idea in the four gospels? Yeah, and it's fascinating, again, in, in Luke's gospel, as I mentioned, often when men and women are contrasted, it doesn't go well for the boys. And in Luke's gospel, when the, when the women come and tell the, the male apostles that they've seen Jesus, um, it, Luke tells us that they thought it was an idle tale and they didn't believe them. But in, in the terms of the culture of the day, it wasn't completely unreasonable that the male apostles didn't believe the women, because as... As Kelsa said, women were known to be over-emotional and particularly prone to superstition. Um, and, you know, maybe they, maybe, maybe they thought they saw somebody, but they didn't really. And it's fascinating in John's gospel, we see that actually it, it's, it's, it seems that Jesus kind of quite deliberately chose to first meet with Mary Magdalene and the other women who'd, who'd come early on that first Sunday morning to, um, they thought they were going to kind of finish off the burial process. They had no idea they're in fact going to be the witnesses of, of Jesus's resurrection. But Peter and the author of John's gospel kind of run to Jesus's tomb when they hear the first report from the women. So Jesus actually could have quite easily met with Peter or, or the author of John um, first, but instead he meets with Mary Magdalene um, and there are other women, women there as well. She talks in the plural when she comes back to report on this. And I kind of love the fact that, that John leans in to the fact that Mary is weeping. You know, he, he talks about the fact that she's crying. She's crying, she's crying, she's crying. At first, at first she doesn't even recognize Jesus. She thinks that he's maybe the gardener. And then he says her most common of all names, Mary. 
And in that moment, she recognises who he is. I think it is very striking that Jesus reveals himself after resurrection first, first to, to the women and, and puts that message into their hands. And it's interesting, you know, later, um, Kelsus sort of famously laughs at the fact that most of the early Christians are women. You know, he says Christians seem to be, they want and are able to convince only the foolish and uneducated, only women, slaves, and little children. It wasn't completely true. There were certainly many men who followed Jesus as well, but actually disproportionately, it seems like from the very first, there have been more Christian women than Christian men. And, and we do see in the Gospels, yeah, this, this unanimity that women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. And if you were trying to convince somebody in that time and place that something completely extraordinary had happened, you wouldn't have made that detail up. There will be sceptical people, perhaps in our live audience here, but um, certainly listening to the pod when this goes out, who just won't be able to bring themselves to believe, despite all your lovely words, uh, that, that Christianity, that Jesus is good news for women, given everything. So can, as we close, can you help us think through why this is good news for women? Jesus's sacrificial, unrelenting love is good news for every single human being, male or female, old or young, rich or poor, healthy or sick. And we see in the Gospels that anyone who comes to Jesus on their knees recognizes who he is. None of us can come to Jesus with our, our pride intact. And actually we see often in the Gospels sort of self-righteous men standing kind of trying to, to judge Jesus, unable to see who he is. And we see women coming to Jesus often on their knees, pleading for him to help them. And he heals them, he receives them, he validates them, he welcomes them. We have no idea of the impact that that has had over the last 2,000 years because we live downstream of this radical teaching and model and example. We don't know how much it has done for women today. And we don't know how much we, we lose when we unravel some of the countercultural teachings that Christianity bought in the first place. For example, the, the valuing of little children, and for example, the, the high value set on sexual faithfulness. Because in an economy, in a sexual economy where there are no rules, it is the, the physically weak who lose out. And actually many women in the, the Western world today are, are experiencing that in um, really painful ways. But it's fascinating to me how in the Gospels, we see so many women putting their trust in Jesus. And we often don't know some of the details about them that we might expect to know. We often don't know if they were married. We often don't know if they had children. What matters most is that they recognize Jesus for who he was and they put their trust in him. Often when they run out of all other possibilities, like that woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, tried everything she needed to do, spent all her money on the doctors, and then she came to him. 
And that is the absolute best thing that can happen to any woman today, is to recognize who Jesus is, receive his mercy and forgiveness, and his unrelenting, unconditional, everlasting love. Will you please help me thank Rebecca McLaughlin. Undeceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by the wonderful Kaylee Payne, directed by Mark Kendall Hadley. <laughs> Socials are by Sophie Hawkshaw, currently also on camera. Siobhan McGuinness is our online librarian. Lindy Leveston remains my wonderful assistant. Editing is by Richard Humwee. Alistair Belling is writer and researcher and drummer in the Undeceptions band. Santino DeMarco is Chief Financial Advisor, and he's also on keys and accordion. Colin Benvenuto on guitar, Jonathan Byrne on bass. Dakota Love is our voice actor and cellist. Huge thank you to PLC Croydon for hosting us today, and a special thanks to our major sponsors, Cellar Travel and Morling College. Undeceptions, is the flagship podcast of the Undeceptions Network, letting the truth out. See ya. Podcast.